Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Thomas Berry. I'm a research fellow in the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. And today I'm thrilled that we'll be discussing uh, Professor Kurt Lash's new book, The Reconstruction Amendments, The Essential Documents. The Reconstruction Amendments is a collective term for the three constitutional amendments ratified between 1865 and 1870 in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime. The 14th Amendment established that the states may not deny any person due process of law or equal protection of the laws, nor may they deny to any citizen their privileges or immunities. And the 15th Amendment established that the right to vote may not be denied or abridged on the basis of race or color. Together, these three amendments so transformed our constitutional structure that their drafting and ratification has been referred to by some scholars as America's second founding. Professor Lash's new two-volume work is a meticulously curated collection of the key speeches, debates, and public dialogues that surrounded the adoption of these three amendments. It begins at the beginning with the Declaration of Independence and other early writings and speeches that would influence the drafters of the Reconstruction Amendments, and it continues on all the way to final ratification of the 15th Amendment in 1870. It includes not just famous speeches by well-known politicians, but also lesser-known sources like newspaper articles and court cases. Together, I think it's been universally considered the most comprehensive collection of primary sources on the Reconstruction Amendments ever assembled. Here to talk about this and why it matters for our constitutional debates and controversies today, I'm thrilled to have three distinguished legal scholars joining us. First is the author himself. Professor Kurt Lash is the E. Claiborne Robbins Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Richmond, where he teaches and writes about constitutional law. Founder and director of the Richmond Program on the American Constitution, Professor Lash has published a number of works on the subjects of constitutional history, theory, and law, including the 14th Amendment and the Privileges or Immunities of American Citizenship and the Lost History of the Ninth Amendment. Rather than resting on his laurels for a bit, he's already under contract with Yale University Press for his next book, A Troubled Birth of Freedom, The Struggle to Amend the Constitution in the Aftermath of the Civil War. Professor Lash has a BA from Whitman College and a JD from Yale Law School. And joining Professor Lash are two scholars who will be commenting on his work, its implications, and perhaps even some points of disagreement they may have as to what it means for our constitutional controversies of today. First will be Professor Christopher Green, who has taught since 2006 at Ole Miss, where he's the Jamie L. Whitten Chair in Law and Government, and where he co-teaches a class on the Constitution of Economic Liberty with Cato's own Ilya Shapiro. Among his 14th Amendment work, he's written a book and two articles on the Privileges or Immunities Clause, two articles on the Equal Protection Clause, one of which was cited by Justice Stevens in McDonald versus Chicago, four articles on the Due Process Clause, and two articles on the legitimacy of the 14th Amendment. He is working on another book telling the 800-year history of the 14th Amendment from Magna Charta to present day, tentatively entitled From Runnymede to Obergefell. Professor Green has a BA from Princeton, a PhD from Notre Dame, and a JD from Yale Law School. And finally, Richard Primus is the Theodore J. St. Antoine Collegiate Professor at the University of Michigan Law School, where he teaches the law, theory, and history of the U.S. Constitution. He has published on a variety of topics within constitutional law, including federalism, equal protection, interpretive theory, and the processes of constitutional change. 
His work related to the Reconstruction Amendments prominently includes his article, The Riddle of Hiram Rebels, which appeared in the Harvard Law Review in 2006. In 2008, Professor Primus was a co-recipient of the first ever Guggenheim Fellowship in Constitutional Studies, given for his work on the relationship between history and constitutional interpretation. Students at Michigan Law have given Professor Primus the annual award for law school's best teacher on four occasions. And Professor Primus holds a bachelor's degree in social studies from Harvard, a doctorate in political theory from Balliol College, Oxford, and a law degree from Yale. I notice a theme. Before we begin, I want to remind our viewers they can submit questions via web page or on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube using the hashtag CatoScotus, C-A-T-O-S-C-O-T-U-S. And at any time, you can visit our event page at Cato's website to access additional resources related to this panel. And with that, I'll hand it over to Professor Lash. Thank you. Thank you, Thomas. Honored to be here. Thanks to the Cato Institute for inviting me to come and talk about the collection. I'm especially happy to be here with my friends and occasional scholarly opponents, Chris Green and Richard Primus, and I'm glad they've been, a, they've been invited to be a part of the conversation. I look forward to their comments. What I'd like to do is take um, a few minutes and talk about the collection in general, its general content, how it was put together and the general theory. And then I'll end with some brief thoughts about particular documents that I'm especially glad are actually part of, uh, part of the collection. The, a global description of the documents, the Reconstruction Amendments, the essential documents, is that you've got 400 original historical documents that relate to the framing and the ratification of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And it's the first collection of its kind, and you, you referred to that in your introduction. Prior to now, no one had collected and published the key framing and ratification documents of the Reconstruction Amendments. And that that's really pretty surprising when you think about all the multiple collections that are already available when it comes to the original, uh, the original Constitution. For Reconstruction, all we had uh, was an out-of-print, um, out cut-and-paste collection of congressional speeches. We didn't have anything at all on ratification. So in a lot of ways, I, went, I decided to move forward with this project simply because I needed something myself uh, in doing my own historical research on Reconstruction. I had no idea that it would take 10 years, ultimately, to get this thing from beginning beginning to end. I just read, uh, Chris Green, I think, um, has indicated that it contains a million and a quarter words. And when I think about transcribing all those words, it makes sense why, you know, carpal tunnel syndrome has been a problem for me over the past couple of years. It would have taken longer if I hadn't had so much help and assistance from uh, constitutional historians all over the country from a variety of points of view. I'm particularly indebted to uh, the great historian, Michael Kent Curtis, who has talked with me and encouraged me right from the beginning to, uh, to put the collection together. And I'm truly indebted to the University of Chicago Press and especially the late Chris Rhodes, who was an editor at Chicago Press and who encouraged me to put something together as a follow-up to the Founders Constitution. And Chris passed away while the project was still going forward. And I'm very sorry for that. I'm sorry uh, for all of our loss. The collection. So what does it include? Well, you've got, you have two volumes and the volumes are focused in on public constitutional debates, public debates roughly from the time of the founding through 1870 and the ratification of the 15th, uh, the 15th Amendment. And the goal of the collection, it has a very public kind of goal. It, it is hoping to provide insight into the public understanding of the events that and the events and arguments that led to the addition of these three amendments, the three Reconstruction Amendments. And 
its focus on public discussion really kind of reflects my own originalist approach to constitutional interpretation. But a documentary collection of the public debate, I think, will be of interest to, to all historians, regardless of their particular interpretive, um, interpretive approach. It includes, as, you, as Thomas, as you mentioned in the introduction, it includes newspaper essays, public speeches, political campaign documents, transcripts of public meetings, magazine articles, really anything that contains aspects of the debate in the public square. And it includes hundreds of pages of congressional debates as well. But those debates were also part of the discussion in the public square. Reconstruction era, um, era newspapers published these congressional debates on a daily basis. And the explosion of antebellum newspapers ensured that those debates would, you know, they would penetrate into every part of the United States, both the large cities and small, both north, uh, north and south. And notice how that makes the congressional debates at the time of Reconstruction quite different from the debates that were in the Philadelphia Convention at the time of the founding. Those debates were secret. These debates were not. The whole event was just um, remarkably, uh, remarkably public. The materials in both volumes are presented chronologically, so readers will be able to follow the development, for example, of abolitionist theory from Garrison to Douglas, uh, the development of secessionist theory from the Hartford Convention to the nullification crisis, to Calhoun's disquisition, to South Carolina's declaration of secession. Readers of the 14th Amendment will be able to follow the progress of the debates in the 39th Congress there in 1866. So you move from the almost simultaneous debates over the Civil Rights Bill and the early drafts of the 14th Amendment, and you follow that all the way through to the final proposal of a five-section 14th Amendment. And by proceeding chronologically instead of text by text, the way the original Founders Constitution did, readers are able to follow the flow of debates and see how arguments changed over time and see how debates in one chamber over the Civil Rights Act, for example, would spill over the next day into debates over early drafts of the 14th Amendment in, in the Senate. And you're also able to follow public reaction interspersed chronologically with these debates are reactions in public newspapers and op-ed pages and people responding to what was going on in Congress, Congress at the time. In terms of the, the voices and the actual sources, the speakers who were included in the collection, it was very important to me to present as full a range as possible in terms of the public debate, at least as possible for a limited, a limited collection like this. And that meant finding influential voices both inside and outside of Congress and both in the North and in the South. And a lot of the documents, for that reason, just to provide breadth, a lot of the documents provide the voices of the dissenters, those who opposed abolition, those who opposed the framing, passage, and ratification of the 14th and 15th Amendments. Those voices are important. And they're important for the same reason that the anti-federalist voices are important to understanding the choices that were made at the time of the founding. These dissenting voices played a role in setting the terms of the debate. And they influenced the actions and the decisions of those who actually drafted and ratified uh, the Reconstruction Amendments. So as you go through the collection, you'll hear uh, the voices of Republicans and Democrats, um, both parties in terms of presidents, governors, generals, radical abolitionists like Garrison and Wendell Phillips, constitutional abolitionists like Lysander Spooner and Joel Tiffany. You get black civil rights activists like William Yates, David Walker and Frederick Douglass. 
You get women's rights activists like Frances Watkins Harper and Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. You get secessionists like Calhoun in the South Carolina legislature. And you get newspaper accounts of the so-called colored conventions, the Southern Loyalist Convention, the Equal Rights Conventions, and the essays of newspaper editors north and south from, from Maine to Chicago to Richmond to, to California. So in other words, there's a lot. There's a lot of material across all of these, all of these pages. There's ex an extended index in both volumes, but it was important to me and Chicago Press right from the beginning to agree to simultaneously publishing an e-edition as well. So those who get the Kindle version will be able to conduct word searches of the entire collection. And so for the first time you can search, scholars will be able to search a curated collection of reconstruction era documents for terms like um, um, black suffrage or equal protection or privileges or immunities or federalist number 45. Harry Potter fans will be particularly pleased to discover they can successfully search for references to a basilisk. It is all in there and it's easily found. Um, and then finally, each major section begins with an introduction, a scholarly introduction that explains the content and the historical context surrounding the included, included documents. And the idea there is to provide the introduction so it'll make the collection accessible uh, to those who don't have a particular a background in this area of American American history. And also relatedly, I've, I've put together a collection of teaching materials that go along with the collection for those who would like to put together a course on the teaching of the Reconstruction Amendments. There's a link to these materials on the Chicago Press uh, book webpage, and that takes you to a sample syllabus and weekly reading assignments and suggested questions uh, for class discussion. So that's that's the general idea. That's the general focus of the collection. In terms of particular documents, and here I'll just I'll just briefly kind of kind of move through the collection because I want to get I want to get to my co-panelists here as quickly as possible. Um, volume one covers the antebellum constitutional debates and the Thirteenth Amendment, its framing and its passage and ratification. And part one of volume one, I think the way to understand those materials is that it recapitulates in a lot of ways the current 1619 project debate. What was the nature of the original Constitution? Was it a pro-slavery document? Was it a pro-freedom document? Was it neutral on the subject of slavery? What is the best understanding of American federalism? Did we have a compact among independent sovereign states or did we have a newly constituted American people with full authority to regulate slavery in the territories and among the several states? All the different voices and all the different debates on those issues are included in that part one. Among some of the lesser studied materials that I think are particularly important in that section are Frederick Douglass's um, Glasgow speech. Is the Constitution pro-slavery or anti-slavery? It's, it's a remarkable speech and it's also a perfect example of constitutional abolitionist theory that informed uh, Republicans and ultimately Reconstruction Republicans and their approach to constitutional theory. And it also, that section also includes a speech by a young Ohio representative named John Bingham, who laid out his theory of American constitutional rights in his speech against the admission of Oregon. And if you read that speech, you'll find all the seeds of the constitutional theory that would eventually inform his framing of section one of the 14th Amendment. The second part of volume one uh, refers to the 13th Amendment. I think here readers will be especially surprised to learn the nature of the congressional debates 
over the um, proposed abolition amendment. As much as I love Steven Spielberg's movie Lincoln, I think he completely ignored um, this aspect of the 13th Amendment and the ideas that informed uh, those debates. Democrats in particular insisted that slavery was such an indelible aspect of the original Constitution that it could not be constitutionally prohibited without destroying the original compact. And the passage of the amendment and the defeat of their opposition in many ways was a defeat of that kind of pro-slavery constitutional interpretation. In terms of ratification, readers may be surprised to learn that the new president, Andrew Johnson, aggressively promoted the ratification of the 13th Amendment um, in the South, and he encouraged the provisional governments to ratify the amendment as quickly as possible. And he assured those provisional governments that Section 2 of the 13th Amendment could not be properly construed to authorize a national civil rights legislation. So the argument over the constitutionality of the Civil Rights Bill really begins in the early ratification debates of uh, the 13th Amendment. Volume 2 covers the, the 14th and the 15th Amendment. The 14th Amendment materials really take up the lion's share of Volume 2, about 400 of the 700 pages. I'm especially proud of the ratification materials in that uh, part of the 14th Amendment. They were, not, they were not particularly easy to find. In many cases, scholars didn't even know that they existed prior to the publication of these, of these materials. It turned, the states didn't keep um, authorized transcripts of the state ratification debates, but it turns out that local newspapers often would send a reporter over to the state legislative assembly and record or take um, transcriptions of the state debates. And once I realized that that was happening, I spent a couple of years tracking down the likely local newspaper that might have sent someone to the ratification debates and trying to figure out what particular date they might have published those transcripts. And in the end, I found, I found a lot of stuff and a lot of it is included here for the, first, uh, for the first time. And then finally, I think one of the most sublime documents in the 14th Amendment section is the notice of ratification by the newly elected majority black legislature of the state of South Carolina, uh, the state that actually started the Civil War. Then the 15th Amendment, uh, just briefly, it's a rarely studied amendment, at least in terms of its history, and that's probably due to its playing really a sotto voice role in the decisions of the Supreme Court. But the history of the suffrage, um, the suffrage amendment and the suffrage debate during this period of time is really key, I think, to understanding all of the debates that occurred from the end of the Civil War to finally 1870 and the ratification of the 15th Amendment. Readers are going to find out that black Americans had been agitating for suffrage even before national suffrage. They'd already been agitating for state suffrage, but they were agitating for national suffrage even before the ratification of the 13th, uh, the 13th Amendment. Frederick Douglass dismissed the 14th Amendment as a political blunder due to its failure to actually expressly guarantee the right of black Americans uh, to vote. Readers will probably be startled uh, to find out how aggressively women's rights activists like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton opposed black suffrage and opposed the ratification of the 15th Amendment. At the, um, the 1869 Equal Rights Convention, for example, with Frederick Douglass actually sitting there um, on the stage, Stanton announced that, quote, she did not believe in allowing ignorant Negroes and ignorant and debased Chinamen to make laws for her to obey, end quote. Her whole idea, both Anthony and um, and Stanton insisted that educated white women 
get the vote before uneducated black black males. And Douglas, sitting there on the same on the same stage in a remarkably composed response, simply noted that he supported women's suffrage, but for black Americans, the issue was a matter of life and death. Um, again, suffrage and the arguments over political power uh, for blacks in the South are an ever-present theme throughout the Reconstruction debates, and they really just reach their culmination and their fulfillment in the passage of the 15th Amendment. And those collections end with two documents that I'm just, I, I find remarkable, and I'm especially pleased to include them in, in the collection. First, there's President Grant's announcement regarding the ratification of the 15th Amendment and what he called, quote, a measure of grander importance than any other one act of the kind from the found, uh, foundation of our free government to the present day, end quote. And according to Grant, in his announcement, the 15th Amendment represented the final and full rejection of the anti-Black arguments in Dred Scott. And then the collection, at least the main portion of the collection, ends with a letter from, a short letter from Frederick Douglass, that he wrote to a group celebrating the passage of the 15th Amendment. And I, I love this letter uh, for its poetry as well as its hope. Douglas apologizes that he couldn't make the celebration, but he shared in the joy of the celebration. Um, henceforth, he wrote, we live in a new world, breathe a new atmosphere and have a new earth beneath and a new sky above us. That's enough. Uh, there's a short appendix with some additional cases like Slaughterhouse, but really, I think that gives you a general overview of the collection, and I can't wait to hear what my panelists have to say about it. So thank you again for inviting. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Professor Green? Well, thanks so much for the opportunity to uh, be part of the panel. I am a huge, huge fan of uh, the collection um, for what it's able to do in a million and a quarter words. You might think that's a huge number of words. My goodness, of course you can tell the story of the 14th Amendment in that many words. Uh, it is a difficult task. Uh, so I've, I've frequently had people ask me, so I've written big long, you know, a book and some, uh, some articles uh, about the Privileges or Immunities Clause. What did I read for that? Um, I read something like a million and a half words, uh, pretty much the debates on the Civil Rights Act of 1875. So I read, starting in 1872, about a million and a half words, so more than uh, Kurt's uh, book. But because of where the story ends, actually none of that material is in uh, uh, in Kurt's book. I mean, it would be very, very easy to think of, of ways to make this uh, 10 times as long, uh, which would not be something you can give to somebody. So frequently people ask me, they say, well, what, what should I read in order to understand whether you're just making stuff up? Uh, what do I need to uh, read in order to uh, become an expert? Um, in at the University of San Diego, we have the originalism conference every February and people who are not reconstruction experts sometimes come away from our panels on reconstruction saying, I'm just never gonna know really for myself what the 14th amendment uh, means. So these, these volumes really in terms of just giving somebody something they can read to get a pretty full picture of how the 14th amendment was adopted 
uh, pound for pound, they are uh, fantastic uh, in that respect. Um, that said, they're, you, know, you don't want to uh, think that they do things they don't do. Um, in terms of how I would approach interpreting the 14th Amendment, it is very important uh, to see, as I understand things, what the words of the amendment expressed in the language of the law. So according to linguistic conventions uh, among lawyers, um, where would they go to understand what the due process clause meant, what the equal protection clause meant? They would go places uh, like Magna Carta uh, in 1215. They would go to places like Edward Cook, early 17th century. They go to Blackstone. So Blackstone actually gives a definition of protection of the laws that is going to be very important, uh, I think, for understanding how a legally trained mind would understand those words. Uh, Marbury versus Madison has uh, just uses the phrase, the protection of the law, in a way that I think is, is super important background. And any lawyer during Reconstruction would, of course, know uh, about Marbury. That said, you know, you've got to start somewhere and starting with American independence is, uh, uh, as I've plotted out, you know, what I'm going to try to say in my 800 year story of the 14th Amendment, uh, starting at independence, you know, if you, once you, once you back up, you're really going to have to dig, uh, dig into a lot of history. Uh, I've actually given a little bit of thought to uh, say, well, you can't really just start at Magna Carta in 1215, you've got to go back to uh, 90 uh, BC uh, and the social war uh, where citizenship is extended from Rome to the entire Italian peninsula. Uh, John Adams talks about the expansion of citizenship uh, from being a thing pertaining to a city to a thing pertaining to an entire nation. And that is really very similar to the thing that happens in the 14th Amendment. At any rate, uh, a lot of people review books and they say, well, the problem with this book is it's not my book. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, one good thing about this book is that it's not my book, so it's not going to preempt it. Um, so what, you know, what could you add to this? You could add legal, just discussions of these legal terms, and uh, you could tell a legal history of these three terms. Um, I think what, what Kurt's collection here is doing is largely telling a political history. So it's, it doesn't just focus on the political maneuverings in the 39th Congress. It's, it tells a very, very important history of civil rights agitators uh, pushing for citizenship all the way uh, from uh, the founding to, uh, uh, to Reconstruction. Um, but it's it really focused on a particular sort of document. And it's not the kind of like definitions of due process from Joseph's story, definitions of equal of, of protection of the laws from Blackstone, that that kind of thing. So you you're gonna want to uh, uh, dig into some other material as well. Um, there's not a lot on subsequent interpretation. One of the one of the most fascinating parts of the collection is it's in the Fifteenth Amendment section. But it's the discussions in 1869, 1868, 1867. But after the 14th Amendment, you have a bunch of discussions uh, 
by Republicans who uh, say, hey, we don't need to pass an amendment to have suffrage for the freedmen. We can do this under the 14th Amendment, which is directly contrary to what a lot of the same people said in 1866. They said uh, the privileges or immunities of citizens are civil rights, not political rights. And you know that's a very clear reading through volume two. They say, you can see them, they say it, and then they try to pretend they didn't say it. Uh, and it, it, I think that subsequent interpretation material really is uh, fascinating. So if you go into 1871, you can find high, I mean, it's about on the, on the order of about a million and a half words of discussion of the Equal Protection Clause uh, understood as protection from violence uh, in the debates over the Ku Klux Act. Um, almost all just focused on April 1871, uh, March and April 1871. Um, and then, you know, you have the uh, uh, privileges or immunities discussion starting in 1872 to 1875. Um, uh, Matthew Carpenter, if, if I had a single source that I would go to thinking, you know, you're going to go back to Reconstruction and have a single uh person who knew as much as anyone about what was going on legally, I would probably pick Matthew Carpenter. Uh, but he shows up in Congress after the 14th, after the 15th Amendment has already passed. So he only shows up once as uh, uh, he, there's a notation. Uh, he's making an argument in uh, one of the cases uh, that's included. Uh, so he's clearly uh, the, one of the, probably the top lawyer at the time. Uh, he and Reverdy Johnson are probably the, the top two, but uh, I, I, would, I would probably say uh, Carpenter was the best. And he, he doesn't show up. You gotta go to the, the subsequent interpretation uh, uh, stuff for that. One additional reason to really push the story quite a bit further uh, out in time it's not that you want to tell a sad story, but the nullification of the 15th Amendment and the really bad misinterpretation of the 14th Amendment in the 1890s, I think it, it, it's, it's very important to, when we think about these amendments today, we remember how long it took for these promises to get fulfilled. So uh, I'm always, I always think of, uh, Martin Luther King's statement at uh, the March on Washington, he says, we have come here to cash a check. Uh, talking about not just the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, but also I think the 14th Amendment and 15th Amendment and 13th Amendment, all the, you know, talking about the promises that America made during Reconstruction. He said, too frequently, those promises have come back marked insufficient funds. So the story of really that tragedy I think is a very important story to tell. And again, we shouldn't expect a story about how the amendments came to be to tell this, also to, to tell the story of how they took so, so long to be, uh, be implemented. But uh, I do think that's an important thing to uh, just want to, to have people to, uh, to read as well. Um, finally, I did wanna say, I, I really wanna, tip my hat to Kurt in terms of including material that I think does cut against some of his distinctive uh, uh, views about the 14th Amendment. Um, so not to you know go into great detail about exactly, uh, so we've disagreed about the Privileges or Immunities Clause, about the Due Process Clause, we've disagreed about uh, some of the issues about legitimacy. 
And uh, frankly, reading through it, there's a lot of material that supports me. Uh, maybe this says more about my own uh, priors and uh, wishful thinking. Uh, isn't just a river in Egypt, as they say, uh, but uh, there's a lot of material, I think, that causes trouble for some of uh, uh, some of Kurt's uh, views. So the idea that a privilege of citizens of the United States means something that's enumerated in the Constitution um, in these Pennsylvania debate uh, discussions, which are, I mean, probably the single biggest fun. I was like, wow, I didn't know that existed. Uh, a moment was the uh, the Pennsylvania discussions in February, uh, January and February 1867. Uh, an amazingly full discussion by very sophisticated lawyers. Well, one of them, one of them says, um, uh, so he's, he's opposing the amendment, but he says, in no part of the proposed article, uh, so I'm sure Kurt remembers this because uh, as he's editing, I put you know, page 372 of volume two, in no part of the proposed article, nor in the constitution as it now stands, is there given a catalog of the privileges and immunities of citizens, which by this clause, the states are prohibited from abridging. Seems like he's confronting the idea that uh, to be a privilege of citizens of the United States, uh, I mean, just he's explicitly rejecting that. This would be the moment for the Republicans favoring the amendment to say, uh, what do you mean? Of course they're enumerated. What we're doing is applying the Bill of Rights to the states and not doing anything else. Uh, but they don't, don't do that. And, um, you know, the idea that the privileges of citizens of the United States are not enumerated in the document seems to be uh, taken, you know, uh, as common ground here. Um, there's hundreds of little notes that I have in the margin of, of things saying, when I debate Kurt, you know, bring this up. Um, one other one uh, is from, um, it's, a, it's a much better known document, but the, um, the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848 uh, has this wonderful little document. It's sort of a, uh, a riff on the Declaration of Independence. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one portion of the family of man uh, to assume among the people of the earth a position different from that which they have hitherto occupied. You know, so we're, uh, uh, the suffragettes are, are agitating for uh, uh, various kinds of rights, and they say, you know, we're going to explain why. Well, what do they want? One of the big things they want is uh, economics freedom, economic freedoms to uh, employment. So, you know, talking about um, uh, mankind, man has monopolized nearly all the profitable employments. And from these, she is permitted to follow. She receives but a scanty remuneration. So she's talking about occupational freedom, but the upshot of the Seneca Falls statement, I think you've got to, I mean, this is just really important for background of the privileges or means clause. The upshot is in view of the unjust laws above mentioned, and because women do feel themselves aggrieved, oppressed, and fraudulently deprived of their most sacred rights, we insist that they have immediate admission to all the rights and privileges which belong to them as citizens of the United States. Um, I mean, just, it's very clear when you take privileges or immunities uh, uh, language, when it shows up in the constitution, it's obviously gonna uh, uh, be understood as uh, in part, I mean, they're not in 1848, you know, immediately demanding the 14th Amendment or anything, but this is clearly a very important part of the background of how people thought about rights, how people thought about the rights of citizens of the United States. Uh, and it, it's not 
an enumerated rights uh, only uh, view. And uh, so among the, you know, the two pieces of evidence that I would, that I, I will say <laughs> at future debates with, with Kurt, I wanted to uh, 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 cite those. I did, I would, we were talking earlier about whether we want to try to make this a, a debate. We, you know, I, I don't want to get that, but I do. The upshot really is, you know, Kurt could have, especially in the Pennsylvania debates, he could have just, yeah, you know, there's, there's a really hundred pages. I can only, I'm only putting in maybe 10% of the debate. It would be very, very easy to put an ellipsis there and just not include that bit. But I included it, even though he had to be, had to know that that would be red meat uh, for the greens of the world uh, who want to, uh, want to hit back at his uh, uh, his view of incorporation uh, of the uh, Bill of Rights and other enumerated rights as, as the only thing the Privileges or Immunities Clause does. So uh, I've probably gone over time, but uh, I'll let uh, I'll let Richard come now. All right, fantastic, Professor Primus. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, happy to be here. I'll pick up very briefly on something that Chris said, which which I I'm confident Kurt would agree with. Um, but it's, I think, a, a generally good cautionary note that Chris emphasizes about all works of history, which is that the difference between comedy and tragedy is when you choose to end the story. Um, uh, and that's certainly true with respect to the story of Reconstruction. Um, that doesn't mean that any given chosen ending point is the wrong one because you could have ended it elsewhere and have it come out differently. Um, it's just an important thing to remember that each way that we tell the story is one of the ways of telling the story and that our full understanding uh, of this or any other aspect of history has to accommodate you know, that reality of many possible endpoints, right? Um, but let's talk about this one on its own terms because what Kurt Lash has done here, this is a wonderful project. Um, it's monumental in more than one sense of that word. Um, I, I think I think that this project was not just scholarly, but also personal for Professor Lash. Um, I mean, several things by it. It's my sense that he feels deeply invested in the ideas of these documents and in getting the story as he's telling it right. Um, it's also my sense that he likely feels some sense of personal connection or even pride because it's my understanding that he is himself a descendant of a member of Congress who was present at the passage of, of the proposal that became the 13th Amendment. And that sort of connection is the sort of thing that could give someone um, a particular set of incentives and felt relationships toward the material um, that could produce um, a loving and dedicated attitude toward the work. And the work that we have, I think, reflects that kind of attitude. Um, I hope that. Kurt feels an appropriately deep sense of satisfaction um, at the execution and completion of the project. It is, the, the volumes are now, they sit on my shelf next to um, another very famous collection of constitutional law documents, the Curland and Lerner Founders Constitution documents. Um, and I could lose myself in these volumes documents for weeks on end with you know, no trouble whatsoever. Um, now, one of the reasons that I think it's appropriate to put these volumes on the shelf next to the Founders Constitution set uh, has to do with a particular choice that Kurt made in how to present his documents and what documents to present that I, I think of as one of the most important aspects 
of this collection, right? Any collection of documents involves choices. Responsible collections reflect responsible choices and interesting collections reflect interesting choices. And a key choice in this collection is to present the reconstruction amendments as having their most important origins, not in 19th century America, but in 18th century America, in the founding. That is to say, to see reconstruction as growing out of, perhaps as the fulfillment of, or the culmination of a set of ideas being worked out from the founding in a process that did not come to rest in the 1770s or 80s or 90s, um, but that was still ongoing and required perhaps the reconstruction amendments. And I think there's something to this. I think that the, um, um, it's been said already in this conversation that reconstruction is sometimes thought of as the second founding. But Kurt's way of presenting the material suggests something that goes even beyond the second founding idea, right? It suggests that reconstruction maybe is part of the first founding, that the first founding should be understood as a temporarily extended phenomenon, right? Not something that comes to rest in the 1780s, but something that comes to rest only with the 15th Amendment. And then, of course, we need to ask the question, what then is the relationship between, you know, the thing that we thought of as the first founding, right? The thing that happened uh, in the 1780s and reconstruction, right? Um, if they're parts of the same whole, if what we should imagine is a continuous century of nation building, bookended, perhaps, bookended is not quite right, um, uh, near bookended, there are sort of large volumes near each end, um, by the adoption of the Constitution in the 1780s and the Reconstruction Amendments later, what's the relationship between the two, right? Um, one possibility that I think the second founding image suggests is that we should think of Reconstruction as a sequel to the founding, right? The founding exists on its own terms, comes to a rest, and then there's a sequel. Um, and the sequel uh, features some of the same themes and struggles and so forth, but it is a separate story unto itself. Another possibility, which Kurt's presentation suggests, is no, it's not a sequel. It's the second act of a two-act play, right? Um, the founding, the thing we used to call the founding, um, it ends in medias res, right? We take a break, but we don't leave the theater. Um, this is still ongoing. The unfinished business is not the kind of unfinished business that you have at the end of the story. It's the kind that you have while the story is still continuing. Um, and reconstruction comes to finish that story. Um, now, if that's the frame, and I think it's a very interesting and illuminating frame, then we need to think about the Reconstruction Amendments, perhaps, not as amendments executed within a regime established by a previous founding, but as part of a founding of a still unsettled system. Right? The, the normal picture, right, the one that you invoke when you write briefs about constitutional law in courts, is that the regime is settled with ratification in 1788, and subsequent changes to it proceed on the terms of and are legitimized on the authority of the rules laid down by that settlement. 
But if reconstruction is still part of the founding, then maybe we haven't reached full settlement yet, right? Maybe things are still happening in the way they happen in a founding period when things are still very much up in the air. Um, and that throws light in a helpful way on a number of things about reconstruction. Um, for example, uh, it is well known in common law circles for many years now uh, that the ratification of the Reconstruction Amendments involved you know, certain procedural irregularities as uh, measured by our sense of the normal processes of the work of Congress and the ratification process. And scholars argue back and forth about the extent and significance of these regularities, excuse me, of these irregularities. But what's highlighted here is something that I think that debate frequently minimizes in a, in a, in a misleading way, which is the largest procedural irregularity that was necessary to give us the Reconstruction Amendments was the war, right? Was the Civil War. Um, without the Civil War, it seems to me there would have been no Reconstruction Amendments, right? Um, had there been no Civil War, it's not possible to imagine that between 1865 and 1870, two thirds of Congress and three quarters of the states, including a bunch of Southern states, ratify these amendments, right? You can't get there from here. That's not to say that American slavery never would have ended. There are lots of different ways that American slavery could have ended in later decades through other means. Many societies abolished slavery within 100 years of 1865 without Article 5 of the US Constitution. Um, but we would never have gotten those amendments, much less when we did, without the Civil War. And that raises a question. Um, War as a precondition to constitutional change doesn't sound like the sort of thing that's supposed to happen within the normal workings of legitimate and settled constitutional orders, right? Uh, settled constitutional orders are supposed to give us ways of resolving or at least uh, uh, mediating our political differences without war. Right? If we're resorting to war to get change in the constitutional system, something's weird, right? Something is untoward about how the system is functioning. It's, it's difficult to think of amendments for which war is a prerequisite, internal domestic war, as proceeding from the kind of legitimate democratic process that we usually think Article 5 delivers to us. But if Reconstruction is part of the founding, then maybe we need to measure the legitimacy of the amendments differently. Maybe we need to think um, yeah, it's true. The Reconstruction Amendments were not delivered by the sort of process that we normally think of Article 5 as trying to deliver, right? Peaceful democratic decision making. Um, but you shouldn't really expect it because the regime was still not settled until Reconstruction happened. We were still in a space of unsettlement and formation where regime change occurs partly through formal legal processes, and partly through shenanigans of various uh, uh, maybe unanticipated um, and incompletely theorized kinds, like violence. Um, that's a very uncomfortable frame for many of us who like to think of the Reconstruction Amendments in different, you know, more normal legal terms. But it's a possible frame that I think Kurt's Choices suggests, and it's a frame that solves or might solve anyway, the problem 
of needing war to deliver constitutional amendment. Um, and if I can go one step farther, it, it raises one further difficult question uh, for the future of the constitutional regime. And it goes like this. The Reconstruction Amendments are, uh, many of us think of them as essential to the legitimacy of the constitutional regime that we have now, right? Um, the abolition of slavery and the promise of equal protection and due process, whatever those promises might mean, right? We think of them as, as cornerstones of the edifice, as things without which our constitutional system would not be the thing of which we are so proud. But what does it mean if there's no way that we could have gotten them without a bloody civil war? Um, it, it might suggest this. We normally think of the Reconstruction Amendments as an illustration of our system's capacity for change within the system, right? We needed a great big change and we got it the right way through formal constitutional amendments. But only with a war to help it along. It raises the uncomfortable question, suppose we needed really significant reform in the future. Could we get it? Does Article 5 permit, enable change that is really badly needed? Or does it not, right? If our only example of that sort of thing required a war to get it going. Um, I am grateful to Kurt for many things connected to this project, including um, uh, his provoking me to think about that question that way, right? I'm gonna continue to puzzle it out um, and I will stop there. Fantastic, thank you. And thanks to all three of our panelists for those thoughtful and thought-provoking uh, comments. I want to remind viewers they can submit a question on the event page at Cato's website or using hashtag CatoScotus on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. Um, but first, I want to ask Professor Lash for any responses or thoughts or comments you may have to um, what we just heard from the two commenters. Thank you. Those are wonderful. Um, uh, Richard, Chris, just fan fantastic. And you, 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 you've asked questions that I that I have asked myself, and and Richard, you in particular in getting me to think about the significance of this of this collection and what it means in terms of constitutional legitimacy, I think are right on. I do want to say something about that, um, and but I won't be able to answer it. I mean, I I think it's it's an extremely important important question. Chris, I want to go straight to Chris's very important and and heartbreaking point. That this collection could have been much larger, and and legitimately, importantly, uh, much larger, because one of the things I found that was very helpful to me, and Chris mentioned this, is is that discussions of the Thirteenth Amendment are found in the Fourteenth Amendment debates, um, and discussions of the Fourteenth Amendment are found in the Fifteenth Amendment debates. So if you want to study, you know, either of those two amendments, you need to get, you need the whole range, uh, you need the whole range of debate. And it also indicates that those discussions would have continued after the ratification of the 15th Amendment as well. Discussions of, of the meaning of the 13th, of the 14th, and of, and of the 15th Amendment, and they are there. And very important scholar, Chris has done very important scholarship there, Michael McConnell, many um, historians have done very important scholarship on post-adoption 
debates that shed light on the public's understanding of what had happened, what had what had transpired, and and I and a larger collection would include would include those, and would include more of the Pennsylvania debates um, as well, the Pennsylvania ratification debates. I mean, there's there's lots of stuff there. What I've hoped to do is put together a collection that I think most people would believe contains material all of us would agree is important, even if it's insufficient. And even if it's just um, a starting off place, a beginning place, at least we'll have a, a common set of materials to, um, to push off of as we investigate these, the broader collection, a broader collection of, of materials. That also, that also relates, oh, and, and, and then one quick thought, Chris, thank you for pointing out that I included materials which cut against um, my point of view, much of which, much of which I'm sure is completely accidental, um, and gosh, I so regret putting them in there. But but mainly, I started this project aware that the only way it would be successful would be if I included material that you knew about and that you you would find important, and that conservatives or libertarians or progressives. I'd been in these debates and in the scholarly world for a while, and I knew that we were all looking at different materials and focusing on different materials. And so I tried to put together a collection, just intentionally tried to put together a, a collection that would include materials and ideas that cross-cut, that would enable these debates to be continued in a much deeper, much deeper level. And I really appreciate you, you noticing that. That's very important to me. That's very, very, very encouraging. And we will debate. We we will debate. But notice notice how um, Chris's point about the ongoing conversation that occurs after the final moment of constitutional reconstruction, 1870, and the ratification of the of the Fifteenth Amendment, and the idea that the nation was now going to have to come to grips with what they just did, and what it meant, and what its possible uses might be and they might make correct decisions or incorrect decisions and of course this leads to what we regard as the tragic decisions the narrowing decisions of the late um the late 19th, 19th century but that links up to richard's point that um that there was also a conversation a lot of these materials reflect the conversation that ha happened after the original the original founding as the nation tried to come to grips with what they just did um and the meaning of the original constitution the meaning of the original bill of rights what was the nature of national power? What was the nature of, of American federalism? And I, I like the framing that Richard has done in terms of viewing this as, um, as the second act, the second act of the founding. I didn't intentionally do that. I didn't put this together to be the founding still in process. You know, go get your popcorn and then come back and let's see what happens you know, next, I think it's a perfectly adequate framing. Um, the reason the collection is put together the way it is, and the reason why it includes so much antebellum material, is that as I began to encounter these materials and to look at the congressional debates and see what the public was talking about, I very quickly realized that the debate, the reconstruction debates were debates about the original constitution. And, and so to understand the debates of act two, you had you had to understand something of Act One. Again, I didn't frame it that that way in, in my own mind, but I needed to. I found myself 
led to including materials so you would understand what they were talking about. They were not arguing about starting year one. They weren't, they weren't talking about um, creating a new constitutional regime. They were arguing over what was the best understanding of the original constitution. And that was a debate that had gone from the beginning, from, from moment one. So I view the reconstruction debate as really going all the way back to the second after the ratification of the original constitution as uh, the nation struggled to figure out what it had done. Now, what they may have done, and this leads to your additional profound point, what they had done is maybe created a very unstable planet. Maybe at the, at, at the end of the day, they'd created Krypton. Wasn't Krypton unstable? And that's why it, it, it fell apart. Madisonian federalism and this unique structure of delegated and reserved power had never been tried before. There was no guarantee it was going to work. And it might have created a situation in which it was inevitable that there was going to be um, a crisis, a crisis point. And slavery was the that's where the crisis point came to bear. And, and there are all kinds of reasons why slavery was that that point. But it may have been a combination of both the regional division over slavery and the instability, the unfinished nature of the original Constitution that made um, that became so combustible that no forward progress was going to be possible as a unified nation without a civil war and was not going to be able to move forward in the in the direction of legitimacy, which is your you know major point that you're making, legitimacy in um, in recognizing the humanity of the enslaved, that that wasn't going to be possible in an unstable system. There had to be some type of crisis, and it was likely to be a violent crisis. I don't have an, I don't have an answer to that. And I'd like to think that the original constitution, even though the nature was going to be argued about, and it led to a division of constitutional theory between North and South, that it wasn't so unstable that we necessarily had to lose 600,000 lives to, um, and then go through a series of decades, even to, to try and, you know, bring to bear the promise of the reconstruction amendments, that that wasn't absolutely necessary. The South didn't think, that um, uh, that the constitution ultimately the, the South decides um, that Madisonian federalism is wrong, and they, they create secessionist theories, and they believe that slavery was going to end um, unless they exited the system. So they believe that slavery was going to come to an end one way or the other. Um, and once Republicans took control of the national government, it was time for them to leave if they wanted to maintain that that institution. So they at least they at least thought it was possible that slavery might end under the original compact, under the, the original agreement. Were they right? Were they wrong? These are things that I'll be, I'll be struggling with for some time because civil war was no small thing. This constitutional recreation happened um, in the aftermath of just utter destruction um, and incredible loss of life. And I'm just not sure whether or not it was inevitable that we could move forward without, without that war. And it certainly facilitated the passage of the amendments. You're absolutely right. So a great point and something I'm going to think about um, as, as, as well as everybody else. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank all three of you so much. Um, unfortunately, you guys just came with so much, so much uh, stimulating thoughts that we don't have time for to get to our questions today, but obviously, um, You've, you've stimulated a lot of um, thoughts in uh, viewers and readers, and many of them, perhaps they can answer by buying the book, which is 
even better in the long run. Um, so I want to thank all three of you. Um, I want to let our viewers know that the full video of, of this event will be available on Cato's website um, to watch at any time. Um, and I think, uh, once again, thanking all three of our panelists, I think uh, with that we can adjourn. So thanks to our panelists and thanks to our viewers.